you begin to see more and more how pure the Word of God actually is. And for the last few years, I've been meditating in the book of Exodus and the whole Exodus account of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt with a mighty hand and going on into the promised land and seeing it from a New Testament perspective as being our salvation journey from beginning to end. The way they came out of Egypt is the way we come out of the world. We go through the Red Sea, we get baptized, we go through the wilderness and we're en route to the promised land. That's the destination, that's our journey. And a big problem I find in the West and uh, in churches in Britain, America, is we have a very one-dimensional view of Christianity. It's almost like everything is geared to get, making you make a decision for Christ, and that's good to make a decision for Christ. But it's almost like that's the be-all and the end-all, and there's nothing left after, after that at all. And there's this sense of once you've come up to the front, you've been prayed for, you've given your heart to the Lord, that's it, you're done and dusted, and you've got the golden ticket, you've got your get-out-of-jail-free card, and there's almost no sense of anything else thereafter. But according to God's Word, we're on a journey, and that journey is called the Exodus. We're leaving somewhere in order to go somewhere, and depending on how you leave the previous place is how you will then enter into the next place. And the book of Exodus is all about the children of Israel being brought out of Egypt en route to the promised land. And it took them 40 years, but God had a plan for them in all of those 40 years. And in every stage of the journey, he was teaching them things, but he was more than that, he was teaching us things today. And it's quite a, a, a responsibility in that when you suddenly read these things and realize that people went through difficult times and the Lord really was quite strict with them in order to teach you and I lessons today. And if we start to absorb that in our minds, that people actually died in order that we might learn and be educated in the ways of the Lord today. That brings quite a responsibility upon us. So we see there is a journey, and we are on a journey today in, in the Lord, in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's in Christ, it's from Christ, through Christ, and it's to Christ. It's all about Him. And we must understand the Exodus account through Jesus Christ. He was the rock that accompanied them. He was the, he was the angel of the Lord who took them on the journey. And, uh, and this morning I want to look at Exodus chapter 19. And in Exodus chapter 19 is, is really the, possibly the most pivotal moment in that journey. You see, the Lord led them out of Egypt, which was tremendous act of God, work of God. He led them straight to the Red Sea. You need to get baptized. If you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized. Repent and be baptized, Jesus said. We go through the Red Sea. If you're still camped at the Red Sea, you need to get through the Red Sea and go on. After the Red Sea, God took them to Mara, the bitter waters. As many Christians camped at Mara in the bitter waters, they've never dealt with the bitterness and the grudges and the unforgiveness they have deep, lurking deep in their hearts. And they'll never experience anything of the fullness of God, never experience anything of the overcoming life in Christ if you don't learn to deal with the bitter waters first at Mara. And there's too many Christians parked at Mara, building their tents, building their structures, building their churches at Mara, and they have yet to get through to get to where we are this morning. And where we're going this morning is Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. 
In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And when they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. When the Lord brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, he wasn't initially bringing them to the promised land. His initial destination for them, the most important place for them to go to first, was Mount Sinai. When Moses met with God on Mount Horeb with the burning bush, he said, This shall be a sign that I have spoken to you. You shall come to me and you shall worship me on this mountain. And when Moses spoke to Pharaoh, it was all about bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt so they could worship God at the mountain of the Lord. And God is very interested in you coming to the mount of the Lord to meet with him there as he met with the children of Israel. And the children of Israel were 40 years wandering through the wilderness, but they didn't take 40 years to get to Mount Sinai. It was three months. It was a relatively short time in the grand scheme of things that God took them from Egypt through the Red Sea, through Mara, to Mount Sinai. And this is possibly the most pivotal moment in the journey of Israel. Because there they were going to meet with God in a most spectacular, awesome way. And then they will be transformed from a ragtag multitude into what is known as the nation of Israel. To become the very people of God. Prior to this time they knew they were descended from Abraham. They were a mixed bunch with little to connect themselves apart from a common sufferings in Egypt and a common call out of Egypt. But God wanted to bring them together to become the people of God with that sense of nationhood. And it was at Sinai, really, when this came to pass, when they were formed into the nation of Israel as they received the law of God, which became their national constitution. And they were brought into the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, as one people with the Lord Yahweh as their God. And in verses 5 and 6 of Exodus 19, he says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is God's calling for his people, to become a holy nation. Not just a nation, but a holy nation nation in God. And Moses met with God upon the mountain, and he received the law of God written by the very finger of God upon two tablets of stone. And the people were at the foot of the mountain, at the base of the mountain, and they heard the words of God Almighty speaking from the mountain. They saw the Lord God come down. They could not see his visible form, but they saw the the appearance of God Almighty coming down upon the mountain. The whole mountain shook and quaked. There was a large trumpet sound. There was thunders. There was lightnings. It was an absolutely awesome, awe-inspiring sight. They were not allowed to see the, 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 uh, the visible form of God. And Moses was there for 40 days and for 40 nights. And Moses went up into that consuming fire, which blanketed or covered the whole upper mountain, Mount Sinai. So it was a terrifying and awesome and resplendent sight. 
And the people were not allowed to go up the mountain. They were not even allowed to touch the mountain. For whatever the Lord touches becomes holy. And if the people had touched that mountain, the Lord would have broken out against them and many of them would have perished because they had not yet had what we have had to come through the redemption in Christ. They were not allowed to touch the mountain, not even to go up to the mountain. Only Moses was allowed up the mountain. And all these things are a picture for us today of something extremely important in our lives today. And that's why I'm talking about it this morning. The receiving of the law of God into our hearts. And the identity that that brings us, that we are God's peculiar, particular people called out of Egypt to possess the promised land literally as one nation. Not as individuals, but as one nation. Remember when God brought the children of Israel over the Jordan, he didn't bring just Joshua. He didn't bring just a few of the other guys. He brought the whole nation as one. And when we possess the promised land, we're going to go in as one nation. For we are one body. We're not just individuals here and there. We are one body. We are one, one body, one flesh, one etc., etc. Now, when a man first gets saved, I don't know about you, when I first got saved, I didn't have much of a revelation of these things. All I knew was that I'd been passed over from death to life, and I'd become a Christian, and now I needed to stop, trying, stop sinning, read my Bible, pray, and go to church, and bring other people to church. Those are the four things I was told as a Christian. This is the f- Within 24 hours, you need to tell someone else you, you've become a Christian. You need to get into church. You need to pray and you need to read your Bible. I thought, tick, 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 tick. I'm going to do all those things. And that's what I did. And that's the limited amount of un- information I knew. That's the revelation I had. But I had little of an understanding that my citizenship had now changed. I was no longer a, an Englander. A little Englishman. My citizenship was now in heaven. And I operate by a different law than that which followed by the people of this world, the nations of this world. But my understanding of these things was quite limited. We have a very individualistic mindset, especially in England. And I I knew that I had to go to the church, but I didn't really perceive and understand that I was the church. I was a part of his body. And I wasn't going to a church which was a building. I was coming to the body of Christ and being a part. And I was an intrinsic element and part of that body. It took time before that would actually um, occur to my soul. And like the children of Israel in the wilderness, often I think we need to come to the mountain of the Lord to truly meet with him personally and receive the law of God written by the very finger of God to give us that sense of belonging to something which is greater than ourselves. Amen? In Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, the prophet says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, My covenant which they broke, talking about the Mosaic covenant, talking about the the events of Exodus. Although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. 
That's what he's going to do. I will put my law within them and on their heart, I will write it. He's going to do something on your heart. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities and their sin I will remember no more. Praise God. I praise God that I'm under the new covenant and not the old covenant. Praise the Lord. God says there is a day coming when instead of writing his law externally upon tablets of stone, he will write it internally upon the very tablets of our human hearts because these hearts will be made clean and holy in his sight. We will be forgiven. Praise the Lord. And having the very covenant covenant of God, the very law of God written upon our hearts will cause us to be a faithful people who will not need anyone to teach us. Well, this is the way, walk in it, because we will know it from within, because we will personally know him ourselves and will know what his requirements are, because his law will be written in our hearts. We will not be obeying God through a technical knowledge, coming to a synagogue or a mosque or a church Obtaining rules and regulations of men and obtaining technical information about a God that is far away. But we will have it by revelation of the Spirit in our hearts. Something very personable by the Holy Spirit. And Rather than reading and trying to keep external rules and regulations we find in a book. Do your five prayers a day, do your hajj, do this, do that. The personal true knowledge of God himself will be already in our hearts. Praise God. Constantly instructing us in the ways of God from within. This is true Christianity. This is what you are called unto. Being instructed by God himself from within. In a heart that is clean and holy in his sight. And many assume they have this if they've prayed their prayer. When we, when we read about these things and we talk about these things in church, many people assume, well, I prayed my prayer, so I've got this. But have we? You see, the Bible pictures our journey as an exodus from Egypt. And just because we've left Egypt doesn't mean we have yet reached Mount Sinai. Many people just assume because you've left Egypt, you've got to Mount Sinai and you've done the whole works. We have this one-dimensional Christianity. But it's a journey and God has put this whole journey together there to teach us that it's a process. We have been saved, we are being saved, we shall be saved. It's a process. God is doing his work in our hearts and it's it's a process, it's a journey, it's a race. We are running the race marked out for us, looking unto Christ, not unto the Mosaic law unto Christ. Many assume they have it because they have their salvation experience, but have they? If I ask myself the question, do I have the law of God written in my heart? What answer will I give? I think for many years in my Christian life, to be honest with you, I didn't. I knew I was saved. I knew I was on my way to heaven. I knew I'd been born again. I knew I'd passed from death to life. But the idea of having the very law of God engraved on my heart was not an experience I could actually 
honestly admit that I had. And for me, my personal experience was it took years before I ever got to the mountain of the Lord and I just struggled in my own rebellion and my own little path and took many diversions along the way. But Praise God, he actually brought me to that mountain one day and I'll talk about that a bit later on. But do I have the law of God engraved on my heart? When I use the word engraved, the word engraved talks about cutting, being carved into your heart. When we engrave something, it, it takes effort. There's something, there's something sharp that goes in there that actually penetrates. Has your heart been penetrated by the very commands and the Word of God? For years in my Christian life, it had not been, even though I had come to Christ in quite a radical way. Because when someone has the law of Christ written on their heart, they have personal integrity. They don't need to be told what to do because they instinctively want to do the right thing from within. They, they have a contrite heart. They are a God seeker. They love God. And if they sin, they feel bad about it and they desire everything they have to get clean and get right with God again. They cannot abide in sin. If someone is standing there in willful sin and, and abiding in sin and has no compulsion about getting repenting of that sin, that person probably does not have the law of God written upon their heart. They need to come to Mount Sinai. Have we left Egypt but not yet made it to the mountain of the Lord where he meets with us in power? We need an encounter with the mighty one, with the holy one of Israel. In 1 John chapter 2, Verse 27, he says, As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, abide in him. The anointing which you received from him have you received the anointing of the Almighty? Have you received that anointing that abides in you and teaches you all things from within? Have you been anointed by the Holy Spirit? The prophet Jeremiah said there was coming a day in the new covenant when men will no longer need to teach one another, saying, know the Lord, because everyone will know him. This scripture is starting to be fulfilled in the church age. Its full fullness or fulfillment will be in the millennial reign of Christ when we shall see him face to face and the law will go forth from Mount Zion. But we are living in an age and a dispensation when this scripture is being fulfilled in our day. So putting all these verses together, we see that God will write his law upon our hearts via an anointing. Via a baptism, we will receive from him which will teach us all things we need to know in order to abide in him. What is this anointing? Acts 1 verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days henceforth. The Holy Spirit. Have you received the Holy Spirit since you first believed? There's many Christians out there who have come to the Lord, and they're trying in their own strength usually to live this life for Christ, but they've not yet received the empowering because they've not yet got to the mountain of the Lord 
to meet with him in power and to receive that anointing and that law of God inscribed and carved into their very hearts. In John chapter 14, verses 16 to 26, Jesus was speaking to his disciples and he said these words, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, the paracletos, the one who is called alongside, the helper who is, comes alongside you to be your helper in the journey, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you will know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Praise the Lord. What a promise. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will come to you through the Holy Spirit, for it is the Spirit of Christ. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. And because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And then verse 21. He who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Do you see how he connects the receiving of the Holy Spirit with keeping the commands of God? It's because when you receive the Holy Spirit, what happens is the Holy Spirit carves the very commands of God into your very heart. That's how you know you've received the Spirit in a powerful way. He who has my commands, when you receive the Holy Spirit in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you receive the very commands of God into your heart. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose or reveal myself to him. And verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Praise God. God has not left us as orphans. He didn't say, good luck with all that and bye-bye, I'll see you in 2,000 years. He said, I will send you the helper, the Holy Spirit. And God is going to write, he's going to engrave, he's going to cut, he's going to carve his law, his commandments upon the tablets of our very hearts by an anointing of the Holy Spirit. We call this the baptism, the infilling of the Holy Spirit. The Mosaic law was given 50 days after the exodus from Israel, three months. We just read that in verses 1 and 2 of Exodus 19. In the same way, the, 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 the law of Christ, the law of the Spirit, the law of the new covenant, was given, was made of the people at Pentecost, which occurred 50 days after the resurrection of Christ. There is a connection between the two. At the giving of the law of Moses, when Moses came down out of the mountain, 3,000 fell, didn't they? with the golden calf. On the day of Pentecost, when the law, the living law, the law of Christ was poured out, when the Spirit was poured out upon the hearts of his people, 3,000 were made alive. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Hallelujah. At Sinai, the people approached the mountain they could not even touch. The, heart, the top of the mountain was full of consuming fire. They could see it, and they feared but they could not approach that consuming fire. On the day of Pentecost, there was a sound like a mighty wind, and there came t- like 
appear tongues of fire, not just staying up in heaven, but coming down and resting upon each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The consuming fire from above came down upon his people, and they were baptized by the Holy Spirit and in fire, and the church was born. Now, when we use the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit today, most people immediately associate in their mind Pentecostals, falling on the floor and speaking in other tongues. But what the baptism really mainly is about, it, it, you, can, you may fall on the floor, you may well speak in tongues at the receiving of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but that's not the main point of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When I first became a Christian, I sought the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but my idea of what the baptism was was falling on the floor and speaking in other tongues, and that's what I sought. I didn't seek for the, for the holiness of God to come upon me in such a powerful way that he changed me from within. And wrote his law upon my heart. I didn't seek after that. I sought after an experience. And surprisingly enough, I never got it. <laughs> but what the baptism mainly is about is being anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because we receive a mighty outpouring of the love of God. Divine, holy love into our hearts. Which in effect engraves the very royal law of God into your very soul. Into your very heart. Romans 5 verse 5, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Amen? Have you experienced that? Have you experienced a pouring out of the love of God by the Holy Spirit? For years in my Christian life, I did not. I knew I had been received by God. I knew I had been transferred from death to life. I had had an experience with God. I, uh, I had been born again. I had a joy in my heart. I had times when the Lord touched me. I felt his presence close. But that sense of the love of God being poured out into my heart by the Holy Spirit, I did not have that for many years in my Christian life. Have we experienced this pouring out? We call it the baptism. What happens when we baptize someone? They go down in water and they become wet. We don't just sprinkle a bit of water on their heads. They get deluged. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When the, when the Holy Spirit comes upon someone in such a way that they become filled to overflowing, deluged with the holiness and the power and the love of Christ person may indeed speak with other tongues when being baptized in the Holy Spirit. But in the grand scheme of things, this is not the main issue, I would say. It can be important, but it's not the most important thing. The most important and utterly key aspect of receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit is receiving the law of God into your heart. Having his commandments engraved into the tablet of your heart by the finger of Almighty God. Not by a man telling you what to do, but by God's finger touching your heart and inscribing, engraving his command right there in the center of your heart. In Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 10, it said, The Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written by the very finger of God. The tablets of stone were written by the finger of God. The finger of God relates to the work of the Holy Spirit. We see this in the account of Jesus healing the demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. 
Remember in Luke 11 and in Matthew 12, in which the phrase, the finger of God and the spirit of God are used interchangeably by Jesus when he is uh, explaining to those present how he had performed the miracle. The finger of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord. And when God takes his finger by his Holy Spirit and writes his law into our very hearts, we receive the spirit. We receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So I ask the question, have you got to the mountain of the Lord yet? Have you received the Holy Spirit into your heart? Have you received the commandments of God into your very heart yet? Do I possess an anointing from the Holy One of Israel? An anointing that teaches me all things. An anointing that has written the very commands of God upon the tablets of my heart. Or am I still waiting at the foot of the mountain? Have I even reached the mountain yet? You know, if, you're, if you've not even been baptized yet, you're probably stuck at the banks of the Red Sea. You've not yet even crossed the Red Sea yet. You need to get through there. You need to get through to Mari. You need to get through to the mountain of the Lord. And God will take you there. God wants to give you his Holy Spirit. But there is an order in things. Has the love of God been poured out in my heart by the Holy Spirit? If someone has received God's law in their heart, you'll know it. When you meet that person... You'll, you'll sense something of the Lord Almighty upon their heart, upon their life. There'll be something different about them. They will walk according to a different standard. You don't have to keep pulling them away, almost like trying to keep them from evil, like you're trying to hold on, like keep them, don't do it, don't do it. No, they, they want to walk right with God. They intrinsically want to do the right thing. It's become their nature from within. They won't be able to hide sin. They'll walk in it any longer because just the sense of sin will just be, bring such a trauma to their soul that they cannot live like that. You know, I remember times in my life where I've stumbled in the faith and I've sinned, I've done something wrong. And all of a sudden this almighty trauma comes into my soul and I feel... I've got to get this right. Whatever it takes, I must deal with this. Because the law of God is instructing me from within. My conscience has become a lie by the Holy Spirit. And it is condemning me and it needs to condemn me. Problem in the church today, we're often trying to affirm everybody. Trying to make them feel good about themselves so they'll come back and come back and come back. But often what we're doing is we're trying to tell people to not listen to the voice of their conscience. You need to listen to the voice of your conscience. God's given it to you for a reason. Because it's telling you what the law of God is saying and how you're walking according to the law of God in your heart. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, the Apostle Paul says these words. Fight the good fight. Many people just stop right there and they say, fight the good fight. But what do the next verses say? Keeping faith and a good conscience. How do you fight the good fight? By keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck with regard to their faith. If you reject what your conscience is telling you, if your conscience is condemning you and you ignore the voice of your conscience, you can suffer shipwreck with regard to your faith. That's what the scripture clearly says. We fight the good fight of the faith by keeping hold of faith and a good conscience. What is faith? Many people have this idea that faith is just belief in God. 
Well, Satan believes, the demons believe and tremble. Faith is more than belief. It starts with belief and then goes into rest in Christ. We, the Bible talks about the Sabbath rest of faith. We must enter into the Sabbath rest of faith. Have you entered into his rest? It's where you are at rest and at peace with God, where, where you know that God has forgiven you of all your sins. And you enter into a rest in him, in the love of Christ, where you just rest in him because he's forgiven you and you're clean and you're walking clean and you have that glorious sense of cleanliness and joy and, and holiness within that is faith, is the conviction of faith. And that's what we need to guard in our hearts today. And if we sin, the Bible says there is no rest for the wicked. If, if, if I sin, I no longer have peace with God, do I? My peace has been shattered. My faith walk has been caused to stumble. I, I've stumbled in my faith. And then what I, I, I don't need to st stay there stumbling. I need to get up, repent, and keep walking because we're on a journey. Like a little child, you, you know, the little child stumbles many times. And at the beginning of your walk, we, you stumble many times. And boy, did I stumble many times and have stumbled many times. But the important thing is get up, repent, have a contrite heart, walk with the Lord, listen to the voice of your conscience. Keep faith with a good conscience. So now instead of an external law with an external arbiter telling you what you have done or you have not done, we don't go to the Levite, we don't go to the priest and say, well, priest, tell me if I've done the right thing. Levite, have I done the right thing? No, the arbiter is in our hearts. It's our conscience. We have an internal law and an internal arbiter, our conscience, which either justifies or condemns us, depending on whether we are truly keeping God's law or not. And it's all about motivations. What is your motivation to do anything? Two people can do exactly the same thing. One is justified in God's sight, one is condemned in God's sight, because one is doing it through selfish ambition, the other is doing it for love for Christ. When we appear before the beamer seat of Christ, our motivations will be exposed. And there's going to be a lot of embarrassed Christians on that day, I can tell you. And I praise God that God has given me this knowledge so I wouldn't be embarrassed as well because I did a lot of things in the past through bad motivations, through selfish ambition, etc. Now, some may think at this point, well, why should we be receiving God's law upon our hearts? I thought we were freed from law. Why are you talking as if we're supposed to keep some sort of a law? Why, you know, I thought we were free from law. Doesn't the Bible says that we are free from law? Well, there's a common misunderstanding between the law of Moses written externally with pen and ink and the law of Christ, the law of the Spirit, the law of liberty, the royal law found in Scripture, which God will personally write upon our hearts by the Holy Spirit. These are different laws with different workings. When the scripture says we are free from law, what it's specifically referring to is we are free from external laws like the Mosaic law written with pen and ink. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. There is now no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit the law of the Spirit, of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Amen. We are no longer under the law of the letter, but we are under the law of the Spirit. 
And it's a law that God will write in your very heart and you will be acquitted or, or judged, acquitted or judged and condemned according to how you walk according to that law in your heart. It's the law of faith. We're no longer bound to follow written rules and regulations for now something better has occurred in that God has written his very law into our hearts by the Holy Spirit so that in effect we become a law unto ourselves. Judging and evaluating our own walk with God by the state of our conscience. How is your conscience this morning? If I'd have asked myself that 10 years ago, I'm not sure what I'd have said. Because I would come to church and I would go through all the motions and I'd praise God and you know, be very voluminous in my praise and my worship. But I do wonder sometimes my conscience, how it was. Because I used to hide things. I think many of us guys, we hide things, don't we? But how is your conscience? How is the state of your conscience? It's the alarm clock. It's the arbiter telling you how is your soul? How is your faith walk with the Lord? Romans 2 verses 13 to 16. It is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature or instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness. Is their conscience clean and clear? Their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. The secrets of your heart will be laid bare at the judgment seat of Christ. And each man will be rewarded there according to what he has done. Not what he intended, but what he did. When he did. And if you have done things with good motivations, you shall gain reward. But if you've done things with selfish ambition, then you can do the most righteous things with selfish ambition in your heart. And I've done it many times. That will be burnt up at the judgment seat. There will be a fire and it will test the quality of each man's work. And it will burn it up and it will... Be some will just escape us through the flames. And that will be a terrifying time, I can tell you, when you come before the Lord of all the earth. So what law, what commandments has God placed in our hearts? Has he placed the whole Mosaic law? Are we supposed to keep all 613 laws? No, just two commands. Two commands upon which everything either stands or falls. Matthew chapter 22 Verses 36 to 40, a lawyer came to Jesus and he said, Teacher, which is the great commandment? It's like what commandment summarizes everything else? What is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and the foremost commandment, and the second is like it. It flows out from it, basically. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. The first commandment is the great commandment, because out of it flows all of the others, including the one Jesus quoted to show how they flow one from another. If a man truly loves God, if the love of God is really made real in your heart. He will by nature fulfill all of the Ten Commandments. You won't have to tell him, well, you need to do this and you need to do that. He will by nature 
want to do it. He will keep all the moral principles found in the law, not, sometimes not even knowing what they are because the conscience within him will guide him. The law of God written on his heart will guide him. If he loves God, he will want to honor God with everything he has. And that law will instruct him in the way. He won't need to come to church to be beaten around the head that you've done this and you've done that because his conscience will be beating up from the inside. And sometimes we need to have a good boxing match with our conscience and get beaten up a bit before we come and repent and get rid of that sin which so easily besets and run with perseverance the race marked out for us. If you're going through that, we'll praise the Lord. But don't just stay there, get beat beat up, get on your knees, repent and go on with the Lord and hold on to your faith. Praise the Lord. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. In a sense, you wouldn't even need to know what an individual law may be say. Because the love of God within your heart will instruct you in the right way to live and behave in every conceivable situation of life. This is God's desire. This is God's will for us all. That we all may be a law unto ourselves, living to God, not having to be Give, give account to people, but to count unto God through, our, through the Holy Spirit. But the question is, how can I love God with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my mind? How? That's, that's not an easy thing to do, is it? When you, when, you actually figure, when you actually sit down and think, what does it mean to love the Lord my God with all my heart, all my mind, and all my soul? When you start thinking about it, you think, wow, I can't do that. That's, that's too tough. That's, you know, that's, I'll try. It doesn't just happen, naturally speaking. It is a work of God deep within the heart of man. And the work of God is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the very love of God himself, empowered to love one another. Amen. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. The baptism of the Spirit is a baptism into the very love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is being filled to overflowing with the love of God that just overflows to all those around us as well. Before the baptism, we may well have difficulty in loving one another. I tell you, I was an emotionally crippled person before I received the baptism. I was a good old Englishman. I tell you, I I was as emotional as a brick. I met my wife and she had no problems with love. She, she knew what love was, I didn't. And I'm flapping around. I can sort of perceive this sort of love that she has for me. And I, I can sort of perceive it to some vague way as if looking through a dirty mirror. And I'm trying to respond in the right way. But I'm not familiar with love. I'm emotionally cold. And that was me, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, as a Christian, you do what you think is right. And as a man of God, you get taught the word and you think, well, you know, I'm trying to act loving. And I'll do this and I'm trying to show love and it's doing the best you can. But it's almost like pushing a brick up, something up a, a steep hill. And it's not easy. 
The love of Christ can often be a theoretical concept. I remember being in churches teaching about the love of God, not really knowing the love of God in my heart. I could tell you what it meant in Greek. Oh, it's agape, it's dorge, it's this, it's that. and This is what it all means. And But I didn't know it. Really know it. I, I had, I, in some far off way, I, I could sense that God loved me. But I hadn't received it by revelation of the Holy Spirit. It had not become something real to me. Because when you get it in your heart, that trumps all technical knowledge. That supersedes it all. It's not easy to love people in your own strength. We try, and I've tried for many years, and you do the best you can, but it's not always perfect, and you fail many times, and I failed so many times. But when you come to know that you're loved by God by experiencing it firsthand in a mighty way through the Holy Spirit, you start to be able to express that love to others because you suddenly figure out what the love of God is all about. It suddenly becomes something real to you. I want to read some verses in Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason I bow my knees, verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man. He's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit here. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. How do you get to the point where you're filled to all the fullness of God? By comprehending with the ability what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. Comprehending and to know that love, being rooted and grounded in that love. That's how you get strengthened with all power from within. I tell you, if you, if you receive the Holy Spirit, when you receive that great outpouring of his love in your heart, you, nothing else matters. Everything else just fades away because you love the Lord and you know you are loved by the Lord. And everything else just fades away. All the troubles and trials of life just becomes irrelevant because you're almost like in this bubble because God loves you. Have you experienced the love of Christ? I tell you, I was the most emotionless person you could meet. But there came a time when God met with me and it transformed my life. That you may be able to comprehend what is the length of breath? To know this love of Christ. Do you know it? Do you know that God loves you? Not just by hearing it in a church, but knowing it in your heart. That you don't have to be convinced by other people. Like, please convince me that, I, that God loves me. I'm, I'm feeling this. I'm not, I haven't got this assurance in my heart. You know, go to church and get my pep talk and get whipped up so you feel hyped up. And It's not all about that. It's not being pepped up and hyped up. It's about receiving the love of God in your heart so it's a solid anchor in your soul that you know God and you know God loves you. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. We have come to know. It's a process you might not get it initially. It took me probably about 17 years 
my Christian life before I got myself to this point, which is probably me dragging my feet and being rebellious, but it took so long. But there's a process. And often it's more about where you are at as a person, where your heart is at as a person, more than God's willingness, because God wants to give his Holy Spirit. If you being evil know to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? But the problem is often we're not in the place where we're ready to receive. Have you come to, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has in us or for us. It's talking to Christians. We have come to know. It's a process. You might not get it immediately, but it's a process. And you will come to that place where you take a hold of that love and you're rooted and grounded in that love. Have you come to know? Have you believed in the love of God has for you? Or do we hope that he loves us? For many years of my Christian life, I hoped that God loved me. I thought that he loved me. I knew he was supposed to love me, and I thought that he loved me, but I didn't know that he loved me in my heart. Big difference. And this will be a pivotal moment in your Christian life when you grasp that revelation that God loves you, that God has put his love in your heart by the Holy Spirit. And when God writes and engraves the commands of his love upon your heart, you start to become truly a different person. You start to be able to love those around you. Not with gooey feelings like, oh, no. No, but by just by some, a sense of divine love coming in you and having compassion for others. Remember Jesus, he was, he was tired, and, but then he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them. His heart was moved. Why? Because the commands of God were in his heart. And it wasn't something that had to be whipped up by people to impress others. He had compassion because compassion was written in his heart. He had the love of God in his heart by the Holy Spirit. So many brothers and sisters are running around, running after this experience, running after that experience. And they think the baptism of the Holy Spirit is about an experience. Well, there is an experience involved, but it's not an experience at its heart is meeting with the Holy One of Israel and finding out that He loves you in such a mighty way that He writes those commands in your very heart and you receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And it's when, when you receive that, you start to start to love each other and you start to become connected one to another. That's what John was talking about earlier, this sense of connection, how we were going up greeting one another and that sense of a body. We are one body in the Lord, but it's very difficult to be a body if you've not received the Holy Spirit. Because, you, you know, you might go to church and meet with friends and have your pep talk, but you're not connected with love. We need to be connected as one body, loving one another. This is how everyone will know that we are his disciples if we have love one for another. And this is a key barometer of the health of a church. Do we have love one for another? If my brother is in need, what do I do about it? Do I have compassion or do I go, oh, well done, you know, good, good to go done you, let's go to the next person. Do I have love for my brother, my sister? When we start to become connected one to another, when we start sensing that, that love, that it's a holy love, one for another, we start to get the revelation that we're a body. I knew about the church being a body of Christ before I even became a Christian, but it was all head knowledge. It wasn't, it wasn't by revelation of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we got big heads and tiny hearts. 
that was exactly me. But as we become connected one to another, this concept of being one body, a called out people, a holy nation begins to take shape in our lives in a very real way. The sign of a healthy church, do they have love one for another? 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. As we walk in this love, as best we are able, his love is perfected in us. Praise God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, not individuals, a people. A people for God's own possession so that you, as one body, as one people, may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but you have now received mercy. Praise God. I tell you, as a believer, I've been through all sorts of shenanigans and trials and troubles and ups and downs. And I got saved back in 1984. And when I got saved, I knew I'd been born again. I prayed a prayer. I repeated a prayer after my youth leader, and I prayed a prayer, and, and I got born again. But one of the um, catalysts for that, I read the book by David Wilkerson, The Cross and the Switchblade. And I remember reading that book, and reading for the very first time about people who'd actually experienced this thing I'd never heard of called the baptism in the Holy Spirit. I thought, what is this baptism in the Holy Spirit? And I got it in my head because I started going to Elim Pentecostal churches and charismatic churches that it was, you know, you had to fall down and speak in other tongues and that was, that was receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I remember even before I became a Christian, kneeling down in my bedroom asking for the baptism of the Holy Spirit because I wanted it knowing I wasn't going to get it because I, need, I knew I needed to get saved first. But it, I, I just had this desire for the Holy Spirit, for the, for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I remember when I came to Christ, it was a radical conversion. I stopped a lot of bad stuff in my life. I was almost like I could have gone this way or gone that way. And God really took a hold of me. I was 16 years old. And I was right there on the precipice of going off into all sorts of rubbish in the world and God started to change me, but I had an ex a desire for the Lord. And I, every single meeting, I was up at the front being prayed for. I was asking for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You know, any time a speaker would come, any time the invitation would be there, receive the Holy Spirit, I'd be there straight away. Oh, I'll pray for you know, please, I want to receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I'll be standing there hoping that I'm going to receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit and everyone will be falling around me and I'll just be standing there thinking, why not me, Lord? <laughs> Have you ever been there? And you feel like, why not me? And you see people go down and they start speaking in other tongues and the glory of God comes upon them and you think, praise God, but what about me? <laughs> When's it going to happen to me, Lord? And then I took a bit of a of a tangent. I went off into the faith prosperity movement. We were there for 13 years, thereabouts. And, um, but I was all with good intentions. I felt these people really believed in God and they were really serious about the faith. So I sort of hooked myself up to their coattails and uh, got a hold of the faith prosperity movement. And I, I sort of thought that you, you have to do things by faith. And it, this methodology in my Christianity started to come to the fore. 
And I got involved in investments, financial investments. And I would use, I'd make lots of investments, and I'd speak to those investments that they would increase in value. And, and to be honest with you, to start with, I made lots of money. I remember in two days making my entire year's salary in two days, and I thought, praise God, I'm a man of faith. This is really working for me, praise God. And then the dot-com bubble happened, 2001, 2002, and I was exposed massively. I'd leveraged myself out, believing in faith that this was all going to go well. And instead of going well, it all went to pot. And over the period of a year, year and a half, my investments disintegrated. I lost over a six-figure sum, fighting what I thought was the fight of faith, thinking that it, it, the devil was attacking me, and I'm going to pursue, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to, I'm going to be a man of God. I'm going to stand, I'm going to hold on to His word, and I'm going to believe, and I'm not going to doubt. And at the end of it, and I wasn't telling my wife anything was going on. I was keeping your secret, <laughs> the man of God that I was. And at the end of it, I actually felt the Lord was fighting against me. And if you've ever been with a mentality that God is supposed to bless you and you're a child of the King, and He's, he's for you and not against you, to actually feel that the Lord is against you, because I actually felt that He led me to a place where I invested in something and I lost everything, it was my last shot my last throw of the dice, basically, and I lost everything. I put myself into 20 grand of debt and my family, and I had to come out and tell the family. I tell you, it's a miracle that Tanya's actually sitting here today. <laughs> what we sometimes do as believers is stupidity. But God is often in it to teach us His ways, and a storm hit and one of the stupid things that I did affected me and my family for years to come. I had to start working menial jobs, stuff like this, working 15 hours a day, trying to put that money back together, things like this. And it was a struggle. And I was trying to beat myself up, get very down on myself. And you, sometimes you get very depressive thoughts. You think, I'm supposed to be a man of God. I'm supposed to be leading my family in godliness and propriety and all these sort of things, and I've just put them through this, and I've just lost everything. Uh, I start beating myself up, thinking, how stupid. And get this cloud, this blackness was coming upon me. How could I have done such a stupid thing? And then I remember one time I was out in the garden, putting the washing out on the clothesline, and it was a beautiful day. And I looked up into the heavens, and I had this heaviness on me. John was talking about this heaviness earlier on. I had that, this heaviness on me. And I looked up into the heavens. And all of a sudden, the scripture, Romans 5 verse 8, popped into my mind. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. <laughs> and all of a sudden, what I knew technically suddenly exploded in my heart and in my mind, in my whole soul. I suddenly realized I didn't have to, it wasn't about what I do to obtain anything from God. Whilst I was yet a sinner, shouting in the face of God, sticking two fingers up to God, whilst I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. And I received it by revelation of the Holy Spirit. 
something I technically knew before, and I could quote to you verbatim, but I didn't know it, but then I knew it. And I tell you, as I received that divine revelation of the love of Christ, love of God through Jesus Christ my Lord, waves of divine love just flowed over my soul. I was filled with the love of Christ in a way I had never experienced before. I never fell on the floor. I didn't start speaking in other tongues. hope that doesn't mess with your theology. But the love of Christ occurred to my soul in a very real and powerful way. And from that moment on, I was able to start the process of loving one another because the love of God had become something real in my own heart. It didn't get sorted out overnight, but it started. We may seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but what are we seeking after? Are we seeking after a falling down, speaking in other tongues, looking for someone, special preacher to lay hands upon us? But often the way to receive the baptism, or be it to be in a position where you are able to receive it, is by God leading you down a pretty dark path. Before you're ready, ready to be in the place where you're ready to perceive the love of God and then know it personally in your heart. Not always, but certainly was the truth in my life. And I, I like it like the analogy of a bow. If you have a bow, you stretch that bow right back. And as you draw it back, you need to have enough tension to fire the arrow. So God will often put us into reverse in life. And he will, sometimes he will put us in so, into reverse so much, to such an extent, that it seems that that bow is actually going to break because it's bending so much. And sometimes God's going to put you in a situation where you feel like you are the bow and you're going to break. But it's all for the purpose of stretching you out so you will fire true with a sure focus. If we will but see him in the process and learn to trust him in the process and discover his great love for us in the process, this is the test of our faith. And some people start complaining, moaning, saying, God done this, God's not fair, why me, why me, Lord? Others take the way of faith. And they praise God in the midst of the storm. It's what we do when we go through the trials, when we go through the dark days, is key to being one of God's arrows that is going to fly through and find its mark or not of being a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit and the love of God which causes change all around us or not. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God wants to pour out his love into your heart by the Holy Spirit. Have you experienced this yet? Is this my testimony? Maybe to experience it we need to get past the Red Sea out of Egypt, too many Christian people in churches are actually still in Egypt, enjoying Egypt too much. We need to leave Egypt. We need to get through the Red Sea. We need to deal with our bitterness in our hearts, go through the bitter waters of Mara, and we need to find our way to the foot of the mountain. We need to find a way to the base of the foot of the mountain and seek to climb it in a manner the ancient Israelites could not. 
for they were forbidden to do so at the time because they did not know God's way. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 3 says, Come, let us go up. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways. And that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion. What is Zion? The mountain of the Lord. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The former law went forth from Mount Sinai. But the law that we are called to receive issues forth from Mount Zion. The mountain of the Lord. Have you arrived at Mount Zion yet? And do you know the way to ascend up God's holy mountain? The ancient Israelites did not. But we do today, don't we? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was crucified at Golgotha, which is situated on Mount Moriah, which in turn is known as Mount Zion in Jerusalem. This is the mount we are to ascend. God demonstrates his own love towards us in that whilst we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Have you come to Christ in his death? Have you come into that fellowship of his sufferings in his death, being conformed to his death? The mountain of the Lord speaks of coming to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Coming to Mount Zion is coming to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ personally for ourselves. And sometimes we need to come back to the cross many, many times. Coming, taking a hold of his cross and all that it means for us and taking his cross upon ourselves. On the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. What revelation do you have of the death of Jesus Christ? Many people know it technically. I knew it technically for years. Jesus Christ died for my sins. I could tell you everything about what happened. But did I know the depths of his love? Had I ever perceived how much he loved me through that great act on Calvary. We sing about Calvary. We sing about the cross of Jesus Christ. But have I come to the point where I really take hold of the cross of Jesus Christ and claim it for my own and take his cross upon me and follow him? Jesus was sacrificed outside the camp. We must also go out, out of the camp following him, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city which is to come. Are we bearing his reproach, bearing his cross, following him outside the city, up Mount Golgotha, up Mount Moriah, up Mount Zion? Many seek for the baptism of the Spirit in emotionally charged meetings when a special preacher of some sort lays their hands upon them, but often it can be in the very difficult and dark places of life that then become a springboard for receiving the anointing, the outpouring of God's Spirit in a very powerful way upon their lives, receiving the very law of God into our hearts. For the law will go forth from Zion. Have you made it up Zion's steep sides yet? You know, Paul, uh, John was talking about the valleys a few weeks ago and how in the valley that's the testing time. It's quite easy to go to the valley, isn't it? Because it's all downhill. 
very easy to go to the times where it's all seeming so nice and easy, but then boom, the testing time comes. But to ascend a mountain is quite tough. A number of years ago, our family were, went on a family holiday to Borneo, and uh, Tanya thought it would be a great idea if, if, if I had a bonding time with the boys, Max and Ben, my eldest son, and went up a mountain, Mount Kinabalu. It's the 20th highest mountain in the world. It's over 4,000 meters high. It takes two days to get to the top. And I went for a few runs beforehand to make sure I was in tip-top shape. I didn't want to be embarrassed before the boys. And I thought, you know, as long as, I'm, as long as I don't have to run, I'll be all right. As long as I'm just walking, I'll be okay. I tell you, after the first two hours, I was almost spent. I was, I was holding on to that handrail, pulling myself up, thinking, when is this day going to pass? And I tell you, I, I got up three quarters of the way. I was about 3,000 meters high. We had to... Max was as white as a sheet. He was, um, he was 12 years old at the time. I don't know how he did it. Um, I think I pushed him half the time. But we made it half, three quarters of the way through. Then for the last journey, we had to do the next day in the nighttime in order to get to the summit before the, the sun would rise. And I remember sitting down there in the bed um, that night... And I was laying there for an hour, not being able to sleep, and my heart was going to ding, to ding, to ding, to ding, to ding, to ding, because <laughs> of the thinness in the air, and my, my body was just so worn out. And, and then we went to the summit the next day, and I, my, my, my eldest son, he just bounded off. He had long legs, and he, he was fit, and he just bounded off and waited there for about an hour until we sort of traipsed up. And I tell you, reaching that summit was one of the best feelings ever in my life, because I almost died. To ascend a mountain takes effort. It's not easy, is it? Jesus said, strive to enter through that gate. We almost like strive to enter into his rest. There's a, almost like a difference, isn't there? There's a, how can it be that we strive in order to enter into his rest? But there's a work that we do, but there's a work that he does in us. Have we made it to Mount Zion yet? Can we see the way up the mountain of the Lord? The way that Jesus opened up before us. As he bore up his own cross up Golgotha. The same way we need to also travel and ascend the hill, the mountain of the Lord. Bearing his cross to have an encounter with the living God at the summit. And to receive the very law of God into the tablets of our human hearts. Written by the very finger of God. I want to finish in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 25. For you have not yet come to a mountain that can be touched, to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. So terrible was the sight. Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. We have not come to this mountain. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels in festal gathering, and to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking.
For if those who did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns us from heaven. Amen. We have not come to Mount Sinai, but we have come to Mount Zion. Mount Sinai was all in darkness, the consuming fire no one could touch. No one was allowed even to touch the mountain. But we have come to Mount Zion, and the way has been opened up for us. We have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to myriads of angels, to the city of the living God, to the new covenant, to the mediator, the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the blood of angels, uh, the blood of Abel. God is speaking to us from heaven. And he's saying, come up to my holy mountain. If you have not received this anointing, you need to receive it. It might be the case that you need to get in a position in life where you are able to receive it. It's often what's going on in our hearts more than what is God's desire is the problem. God is speaking to us from heaven. Come up my mountain. And the way up my mountain is the way of the cross. And receive my law into your hearts by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let us pray. Father God, we do thank you for the word of the Lord. Your word is pure, O Lord our God. It is tested seven times and proven faithful. Father God, we want to please you. We want to enter into everything you have for us We want to carry on the journey looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We want to run the race with perseverance. Father God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray, Lord, that they will receive your word, Mm. that it will pierce their hearts and their ears and 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 that they will see what I'm trying to say, that they will see what you are trying to say through these things, Father, I pray. Grant my brothers and sisters the revelation of your word, I pray, Father, mm. that they may receive the revelation of how much you love them. Yes. yes. May the love of Christ be poured out into their hearts by the Holy Spirit. May we make it up Mount Zion. May your love, may your law be engraved into the tablets of our human hearts. Mm. Have your way in us, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Bless you, Alex. Praise God. Thank you, Alex. May the Lord write this word upon our hearts, and may we be those that journey on. Wherever we are, the Lord can lead us on. Let's seek to press on with him. Indeed. Just to mention that next Sunday...